1: streaming, and 3CR digital, podcast, or audio on demand. And, of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au.
2: Solidarity forever!
1: Good morning,
0: everybody out there in Radio Land. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, what a morning I've had. And if you were listening to Stick Together earlier in the, uh, the half hour, sorry about the glitch in the middle. Uh, this was because there was a dinner set uh, uh, a bit of excitement regarding dinner Hat. But anyway, it's all under control now. Uh, 3CR chugs along. And uh, Solidarity Breakfast has got lots of things to uh, offer you this morning. Uh, one of them is uh, a little recap from the uh, live cross yesterday to the International Women's Day March. Uh, one of our uh, broadcasters, Marissa, was uh, there. She gave a speech. So we've uh, plucked that out so that you can re-listen to... Uh, some of the action that happened yesterday in that march. Uh, We'll move on to a little bit about housing and then we'll uh, a little bit uh, about uh, the big march that's uh, scheduled for next uh, Friday, the uh, Kids March for the uh, Climate. Uh, It's uh, not just young kids but also university students are going out as well, so And uh, you too, if you want to go and swell the ranks, which uh, in this important uh, battle between the uh, corporates and the people.
3: Hi, everybody. Happy International Women's Day. But after hearing that speech, there's absolutely nothing to celebrate. I'd like to start off by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we stand today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. My name is Marisa Spizarro and I'm here today to talk about the rights of women with disabilities on this very special International Women's Day. To be clear, I am not a disability rights activist and I have not won any awards for mentoring people with disability. Just because I am blind, it does not mean that I have to work or associate with blind and vision impaired people just because there is a disability in common. That means, includes not going to the blind cricket. (laughs) My skills and experience are in the areas of media and working with all struggles, including building the movement to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. Being a radio presenter at 3CR for many years is a vehicle for that work. Having said this, I have participated in some disability rights activism. In a time when governments use divide and conquer tactics that splits communities, we need to be forever vigilant. In this time of homophobia, homophobia, racism and ableism, violence against women with disabilities and indeed violence against all women must stop. It is clear that women with disabilities are excluded from policy and decision making. We also need more innovative programs for self-defence for women with disabilities. It is unacceptable that women with disabilities are often told that they cannot participate in self-defence, especially blind women who are told that they just can't orchestrate the moves. The Australian Federation of Disability Organisations commends the Senate for approving the motion from Green Senator Jordan Steele-John to establish a Royal Commission into violence, abuse, exploitation and neglect for people with disability in institutional and wider community settings across Australia. Women with disabilities have been portrayed as passive, angelic and vulnerable. I have made it my business to learn some self-defense but I am self-taught. So look out, my journey has been long and hard. So the demand is end government repression against all self-defence forces and indigenous communities. Violence against women is not just about partner abuse, it's about being sexually and physically abused in institutions, at work or on public transport. Women with disability need to join unions. Everyone has the right to access education, freedom from discrimination and violence. Historically, and perhaps not so recognised, there were women behind the fortification of the Eureka Stockade on that fateful morning of the 3rd of December in 1854. Did you know that the Women's Christian Temperance Union supported the men and women who carried the Pilbara past the strike of 1946 to 1949? The longest running strike in Australia's history, sometimes known as the Blackfellas' Eureka. Transformative justice is an excellent framework to use when dealing with violence against women with disability. That is, there needs to be healing, perpetuating um, violence systems of oppression and and exploitation and (laughs) colonisation, domination and state violence. Now, I don't think I'm gonna have time to go through everything, but just to summarise, in transformative justice, it's about healing and accountability and fighting oppression and change. And it's important to address state violence in particular and individual violence by, which is evident in shifting power, accountability, healing, safety. How much time do I have left? Two minutes. So I'll just use the next two minutes um, to say goodbye. (laughs) Giselle did ask me to speak about the disability insurance scheme. Um, All I'll say about that is It's a damned waste of time. And I'll just um, read out a quote from Helen Keller. I know that the theme this year is gender balance. I was going to read out a a quote by Malcolm X to represent men as well, but I haven't got time. So I'll just give you (laughs) Helen Keller. (laughs) And Helen Keller was awesome. You guys know Helen Keller. Well, not just guys. Everybody, Um, if I cannot see the fire at the end of their cigarettes... Neither can they thread a needle in the dark. Thank you.
0: When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armit Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative.
4: But with it, hold my hand back, but really loud. Really loud.
0: Yes, you're on 3CR on Solidarity Breakfast and we were just hearing a few words from our fellow broadcaster Marissa at the International Women's Day. What a great speaker she is. And uh, we're going to now move on to housing. The uh, Greens have sent out a a message, local Greens, that is Victorian Greens, saying that uh, Labor has now signed contracts to sell off public housing estates in inner Melbourne to private developers. Uh, It would be a national scandal, they say, if governments turned kids away from public schools and hospitals because they hadn't built enough. But what is exactly what is happening with housing? 82,000 people are on the waiting list for public housing in Victoria, including 20,000 children. And uh, the government is building public housing, uh, should be building public housing on a massive scale, they say, and I do too, but instead it is handing... Uh, off existing estates to private developers. Now, this uh, the uh, places that they're um, handing over this time is uh, uh, Northcote, North Melbourne, Northcote, and Preston and they're going to be given to big developers uh, in exchange for rebuilding a handful of additional social housing units that may well be smaller than the ones they replace. The developers get to make big profits by building over 700 private units on the estates. Now, we brought you some words from the Walker Street uh, estate last week, uh, Northcote, uh, and, uh, they're going to be having meetings about what sort of actions to take. Uh, this, today, in fact, at 2pm, and they're all, all welcoming to people to come to a planning meeting of a coalition of public housing groups. It's at the All Saints Church, corner of Walker and High Streets, Northcote. It's at, uh, 2pm, uh, if you wish to be part of, uh, a discussion about what uh, actions can be taken. The The next one is on Saturday the 23rd of March, 4pm, uh, at All Saints Corner of Walker and High Streets, Northcote. We're going to move on to looking at our, um, a, a thing that happened during sustainability uh, uh, festival there's a sustainability festival that was on quite recently and uh, I went to a, an event called uh, Housing for Degrowth it was a launch for a book called Housing for Degrowth uh, by um, edited by Anit- Anitra Nelson and Francois Schneider it's put out by Rutledge and you can get it online um, it's an Probably all good bookshops will be able to get it for you. It's called uh, Housing for Degrowth, Principles, Models, Challenges and Opportunities. I'll just describe what Housing for Degrowth is. It's degrowth, a type of post-growth, is becoming a strong political, practical and cultural movement for downscaling and transforming societies beyond capitalist growth and non-capitalist productivism to achieve goal Global sustainability and satisfies everyone's basic needs. This is what the book is about. And it's a collection of essays um, by different people about different aspects of that uh, sort of concept around the concept of this. Uh, I went, uh, what they were describing was. Uh, um, Anitra and Francois went, uh, travelled right across Europe, uh, collecting information and giving seminars and uh, collecting material around these kind of issues. What I'm going to play you is actually one of the speakers who was there, and he's from Melbourne University. It's quite a, quite an interesting speech because uh, it's not so much about degrowth as around the issues of uh, uh, planning issues that we're now um, experiencing the pointy end of in Melbourne and uh, I found found it really quite fascinating.
5: Uh, I'd now like to uh, welcome uh, Brendan Gleeson to the podium. Uh, Brendan is an urbanist and director of the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute, also known as MISI, at the University of Melbourne. Uh, Brendan and MISI researcher Samuel Alexander, who I think is in the audience tonight, hi Sam, uh, have just uh, published a short work called Degrowth in the Suburbs, a Radical Urban Imaginary, which was published by uh, Palgrave in their Pivot series. Uh, that work applies David Holmgren's permaculture perspective of retrofitting the suburbs uh, to a degrowth vision of Melbourne. So over to you Brendan and welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Jago. Um, thanks, everyone. Thanks for the invitation. Um, I don't normally read closely to notes, but I'm feeling a bit off tonight, so I think it's probably might be the onset of something. So I think it's probably safer if I do. Um, you'll give me the time card, I know. So a few words. Um, thank you for asking me to speak, and congratulations to Anitra and Francois for producing what Joan Martinez-Alier in the foreword justly describes as "quote a splendid and entertaining book on housing and urban planning for degrowth." End of quote. For me, the book's particular splendour derives from its unblushing determination to challenge two modalities, housing and planning, that have been central to the growth machine we commonly refer to as capitalism. As a critical urbanist, I welcome that approach. Much of the historical enterprise of housing and planning uh, in the modern Western state and its experiences worn the drag of progressive intent, even avowing in some instances to civilise, humanise and restrain capitalism. But repeated critical assessment over a long period has exposed what lies underneath the cloak of progressivism, essentially two licences to smooth the paths of uh, social reproduction and resource efficiency in service of growth, not against it. But things have changed. Capitalism's innate tendency to self-harm has gained the upper hand in recent decades through the neoliberal project, and these two licences have been downgraded or even revoked. Just look at contemporary Melbourne. The newish degrowth movement, if we can call it that, uh, including its intellectual forms, which is we're celebrating tonight or marking tonight, no longer has uh, much in the way of ameliorating institutions to contend with in its critique of market society. In cities especially, we now look into the raw furnace of accumulation, much as our Victorian forebears did, though, of course, in new conditions and in new forms. Still one historical precedent comes to mind uh, Charles Dickens visiting laissez-faire industrial Pittsburgh a long time ago was taken by its proud burgers to a nearby hill and invited to comment on the scene below. They were apparently disappointed when he described it as, quote, hell with the lid off. <laughs> now, the degrowth movement arrives at a, hysterical, uh, a similar historical moment, and the question for me is about whether hell is about to distinguish itself. So in a couple more minutes from me, and no more uh, just to think about this prospect from the perspective of urban studies where I'm situated. I also comment from the perspective of the recent book with Sam that uh, uh, Jago, thank you, introduced, degrowth in the suburbs. Sam is the lead author for that book, and I pay tribute to him and thank him for his influence on my own thinking about degrowth. So, I raised the prospect of an exit from capitalism, about which, to be sure, there's been prolonged speculation and dispute, which might finally be underway and prefigured in the rising violence of the urban process. I think we might see it there, itself betokening wider contradictions that increasingly resist resolution. The retrenchment of capitalism, if it's happening, coincides with uh, the dawn of the global urban age and rapid hypertrophic, uh, shortly, there's a longer form of the explanation, hypertrophic, hyperdense urbanisation in many parts. Now, the seemingly paradoxical intersection between these two simultaneous trends, massive system disintegration and vast physical assemblage, I think, bears thoughtful consideration and after predicting many downfalls we may be able to say with some conviction that the end is is finally nigh and there's plenty of evidence for that coming out in the social sciences and and the other the natural sciences with the and then with the dishonorable exception of economics i have to say about the you know seemingly intractable contradictions at the planetary level now and even uh, old doubters like david harvey who you know continues to who had long continued to carry Marx's belief in the sort of marvellous ability of capitalism to sort of pull itself out of the, its head out of the noose, are now convinced that we do seem to be going through some really major uh, tectonic historical transition to something else. What can we expect of the period of system retrenchment? Wolfgang Strike, uh, who may be known to many of you with his recent book, How Will Capitalism End?, writes, quote, on the basis of capitalism's recent historical record, a long and painful period of cumulative decay, of intensifying frictions, of fragility, uncertainty, and a steady succession of, in scare quotes, normal accidents. In short, a period of intensifying and transformative violence. We might ponder that these new grim assessments are offered in, in the urban age, but few have. On closer inspection, we might say that colossal urbanisation underway. Hailed in the mainstream as a new engine of human and capitalistic prospect betrays many of the social and ecological disturbances and failings that we observe at the system scale. Now of real interest, uh, to me at least, is how the hollowed out state can manage these mighty spluttering machines, urbanisation, without doubt central to human prospect uh, and we may disagree with the more cheerful interpretations of this by popular urbanisms, things like Ed Glazer's um, Triumph of the City book and the and, and the sort of literature that's similar to that, popular literature. You can buy it in airports. Clearly, the long grey night of disorder, which the morticians believe we've already entered, uh, and it seems more and more apparent as liberal d- democracy dims everywhere, what, what, that won't necessarily be a simple slide uh, or swift slide into chaos. Authority will surely have to emerge to stem natural and social disorders and to re the political economy. It'll try that anyway. But, uh, you know, does the state have capacity to do that? Five, got that much. OK. Um, cool. Um, the, you know, the climate emergency alone has the power to overwhelm the existing capacities of the hollowed-out state... Uh, The state in the wake of neoliberalism, which is still really with us, um, to manage urban systems in any setting we can think of. There are insufficient capacities in the withered state that we have to counter, let alone prevent, heat stress, resource disruption, collapse, new disease pathology, sudden panicked intrusions and extrusions of populations driven by more uh, frequent and intense calamities. The list continues. And in any case, many of these disruptions call forth for new diagnoses and tre- treatments that were never developed as modern state capacities. And what's going to come out of that, I, uh, to keep to time, I've scratched out lots of paragraphs as the other speakers were um, wonderfully keeping to their time, but uh, what I was going to talk a little bit about was I, I believe that we see the risings and rousings and tracings of the rise of a corporate urban state um, or a corporate state in the urban process um, and uh, which will perhaps rise up to, in a sense, a fusing, fusing of sort of private corporate capacity which grows ever stronger with the residual powers of the state to form that classic Gramantian corporate estate in a, in a new and contemporary and I think somewhat terrible form to re securitize the social and urban process. But I think a uh, project, if it does happen, I think it would be doomed to fail ultimately. So I did mention the term hypertrophic urbanism, so just to finish, um, I just want to come back to that. It's a rather unlovely term, isn't it? By that, I'm talking about the spatial and temporal intensification of cities and of urban life, which continues apace and in new scales and with new complexity in new ways. It is starkly, if not only, represented in the vertical sprawl that marks the relentless compaction of our major cities. I'm talking about Australia, but not only, markedly in their centres, but increasingly in the suburbs. The Manhattan Project of Urban Consolidation has advanced under the banner of green urbanism uh, for decades, an ideal that I think has cloaked or certainly allowed to come out in in more recent times a more violent, hypertrophic urbanisation of capital. And this hypertrophic urbanism may be defined as the inflation of urban space driven by financial, not human logic. And I think apart from the miserable life condition this imposes on many... Uh, perhaps the majority in such landscapes uh, and the continued material ecological plunder that it realises there's something deeply morbid and I think telling about this new violent urban process. I haven't quite worked it out what it means but we could pay attention to um, well certainly we could think about the, what it means for the ordinary and everyday life of human beings and the, all the sort of questions of justice and Um, sustainability and future life circumstances that flow for it. So the the City of Sydney in our city system is the most completed hypertrophic landscape. 75% of residents now live in that city in high-density environments, soon uh, to grow to 90%. And a recent council survey, which they have not... Wish to broadcast particularly, but which you can have access to, discover that a majority of their residents, a majority, reported isolation and alienation in their living environment. So it's not Freiburg, it's not Paris, it's not even Manhattan. Uh, those kind of you know those tropes that are envisioned by the compact city ideal. It's something much more miserable. It's not the degrowth envisioned by many of us here, and I'll finish in under a minute. Um, it is a retraction not to say theft of living circumstance and prospect for many. It is, in short, a violence, in my view. Such hypertrophies, of course, forms of that, earlier incipient forms, incuit forms have been evident for a very long time, but I think the impulse now appears to have reached a pervasive scale that's signalling some kind of transformation to what we may ask. So to finish, degrowth in the suburbs... Vertical sprawl will continue to play out in Australia's cities and many other cities around the world. Um, But it will continue to play out in our inner cities, I should say. The suburbs seen next in line for violent compaction, uh, indeed, it's underway. Um, When I go back and visit the suburbs that I grew up in, Beaumaris, Mentone, Mordialic, those areas, they're increasingly unrecognisable through this process. Um, And this is not a save-our-suburbs kind of argument, right? It's about... What, where are we going and what, um, what the kind of life circumstances and, and what's the ecology of this that we're imposing through this transition. This will not be the convivial compact urbanism imagined by humanistic radicals like Ruth and Murray Crow in this city in, in the 60s, 70s and 80s or many of the contributors to Anitra and Francois' wonderful book. We should, I think, do everything we can to prevent this um, although I wonder about our prospects for doing that. In the book with Sam, we imagine a different sort of suburbanism uh, that is more like the Crow vision, based on cooperation, sufficiency, ecology, genuine conviviality, that great term that's being rehearsed tonight. However, the Crows worked in a different era when progressive or even radical politics held promise of peaceful transition. Today we have a different world with that terrible simultaneity of vast and rapid assemblage amidst an equally vast and rapid system dissolution that I think threatens human prospect. Degrowth may... W- my, my old granny used to say, all my virtues were forced upon me. And I think with that uh, little saying in mind, degrowth may well be forced on us just as growth and assemblage reach terrible new peaks. It's a concerning prospect. Sorry I can't be a bit more positive.
6: And you're listening to 3CR. Please support community radio. Subscribe now.
0: You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and uh, we've got a, a live interview too on the line. That's Cara Stewart. Ooh, everything's going on at once. Music, silly sounds, but more important is Cara. How are you, Kara Stewart?
1: I'm well, thank you. How are you?
0: <laughs> it's been a morning of uh, ups and downs, but hopefully we will. It's like having a dinner party where half you, half your dishes have uh, fallen off the table. But anyway, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but no, this was this is very interesting. Cli- uh, the Women's Climate Justice Collective. Tell us about the Women's Climate Justice Collective before we get on to the event that you guys have organised.
1: Yeah, sure. So the the Women's Climate Justice Collective started back in 2017 um, at the Climate Justice Convergence in Canberra. And um, we sort of came together because we were seeing the intersection of women's rights and climate justice. And uh, we weren't sure if there was really a group yet representing that sort of movement in Australia yet. So we came together and um, figured out that our mission together would be to mainstream feminist climate justice. So that's bringing uh, women's rights to the climate movement and also bringing climate justice to the women's rights movement. So showing those intersections there and demanding that women's rights are incorporated into climate justice and climate justice is incorporated into women's rights.
0: Mm, That's really interesting because uh, often people would say that uh, it's the actual fight for uh, climate uh, all other kind of identity issues, although, you know, w- uh, the idea of that women have to fight for, for their rights when we actually are the majority yes. uh, always strikes me as being very bizarre.
1: It is indeed, <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> but anyway, by the by, that obviously just means that uh, the uh, idea of dividing and conquering is at issue. And often when it comes to this, Uh, say, your position would be saying that uh, you're actually trying to divide. But that's not the truth, is it?
1: No, no, not at all. Um, In fact, when we fight for women's rights, that that benefits everyone. Um, So, yeah, this is is about bringing together two movements rather than dividing anything. So um, the climate justice movement has been just rising and rising over the last most recent few years has the women's rights movement and I feel like if we can bring these two movements together show that they are in fact completely joined, um, then it will be a very powerful movement and we might be able to turn this sort of sinking ship around.
0: Yeah, uh, the um, big uh, marches uh, and we're getting one, there's going to be a big assemblage of uh, uh, youth and uh, university students coming together on March the 5th in a variety of places, in Melbourne, but in obviously a lot of other places. This is a world movement uh, calling for climate action, uh, coming from young people. Uh, this is an example of uh, the, the line in the sand, isn't it? It is, absolutely. So I think that's next
1: Friday, March 15th. Yes, there's going to be global school strikes all around the world. I'm very excited, and I know that there's a lot of young women involved in organising those strikes, speaking at those strikes, so I can't wait. And, of course, Greta is, you know, Greta Thunberg is a great example of a young woman leading the climate justice movement, and she even posted yesterday for International Women's Day that she's increasingly seeing how women's rights and feminism um, is a big part of the climate justice movement. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's, people are really seeing it now.
0: Do you, do you think that uh, the perspective uh, – I mean, one of the – I mean, I went to a thing on uh, Tuesday which was actually around should there be a women's strike, which is an a, a nice Icelandic-style strike that was taken in the 70s where women were so annoyed at not being paid enough uh, equally and also uh, their – um being considered to be the only ones who were dealing with caring roles etc that mm. they all decided to go on strike and this caused and this is not just uh paid workers but uh home uh, home workers as well mm. and uh the uh discussion that was being held on Tuesday was around those kind of issues but the issues were things like equal pay uh sharing of caring roles and uh also uh gendered violence mm. at work um mm. But uh, so perspectives uh, regard, do you think that uh, those discussions that uh, things that affect women quite uh, uh, overwhelmingly um, are part of that uh, assault that is part of climate destruction? It's the same kind of ideological approach.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it's the same systems that are, you know, devaluing and degrading both women and the environment. it is, you know, sort of patriarchal capitalist systems that are affecting both the environment and women. Um, And absolutely climate change will impact women um, disproportionately because of things like um, there's quite a huge spike in domestic violence after natural disasters, um, which, of course, natural disasters can become more and more frequent. Um, And, of course, you know, there's going to be hate-related illness there's going to be increased injury and as you said women are in the majority of caring roles um both paid and unpaid caring roles so they're going to be taking care of a lot of people injured and made ill through through climate change and and of course a lot of women around the world are farmers too and they're going to be affected by droughts and floods and all sorts of things as well so yeah it is it is a gendered issue climate change
0: the um event that you've got on is actually March the 14th the day before it's like a pre- preparation for the big day the next day really isn't yes. it Yes it is
1: yes <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't intentionally um, set up like that but it worked
0: out quite nicely Yeah I mean uh, actually it's the uh, unexpected uh things that uh really bring things together if you ask me so it's a um a justice a, a feminist climate justice poetry night give us an idea of what that means
1: so, um, it's mainly an awareness-raising event, really. So, we, we've brought together some professional performers, poets and spoken word artists and some artists and musicians as well um, who, are, who are passionate about the issues of both women's rights and climate justice. Um, so, they're going to be performing um, for the first half of the night. And then we're going to open it up to the audience. We're an open mic. So anyone else that wants to present on the topics of feminism, women's rights, climate justice or the intersection of those issues. And at the start of the night, we'll be giving a sort of overview of how these issues are connected. Um, It's co-hosted by the Women's Climate Justice Collective and also ActionAid, which is another wonderful women's rights group who's got involved in women's climate justice more recently so they're also going to be talking about ActionAid um, and the impacts of climate change on women over in South Africa so we'll give people the opportunity to learn a bit more, to hear from some amazing artists and then also to sign up if they're interested so yeah, I'm really looking forward to it Yeah,
0: it sounds great um, especially since uh, poetry and performance artists uh, I mean if people haven't actually had any uh, um experience of that kind of performance. It's quite stimulating, I'll have to say.
1: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. We've especially, I'm really looking forward to it. We have a couple of um, Pacific climate warriors coming along, Nala and Flo, who are doing a, a, a traditional Pacific Islander dance and also a spoken word piece around women's climate justice. But I can't wait to see that.
0: Yeah, sounds great. What time is it?
1: So it's on seven thirty on the fourteenth of March. Um seven thirty to ten thirty at open mic sorry, at open studio in Northcote. Do you
0: know do you know what the um open studio is on what its address is?
1: Um it is two hundred and four High Street, Northcote.
0: Yeah. So that's a that's a achievable by tram if you're not a car person. Perfect. Okay, thanks very much for talking to us, Cara.
1: No, worries, thanks Annie.
0: I think it sounds like a great bit of thing to do.
4: Well, 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 here it is again. The way I feel is down, but then. You know, if you toss a stone in a river, it sinks to the bottom, it won't rise up either. Hey, 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 this here's a tip.
6: This is Malcolm from the Sleepy Jackson. You're listening to 3CR 8:55 AM. Please support community radio and your local music scene. A week solidarity, bricky team listener. When on International Women's Day, two women, despite. Despite news dominated by a woman lawyer ratting on her clients, an equally serious case of class treachery by a woman went almost unnoticed, at least among the frenetic gangland headlines of the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin. Before I go on, perhaps I should point out a week also dominated by It's the Economy Stupid. And as we absorb the wisdom of those who know all about the greatest little economic order of them all, we realise, no, no, I won't include you, listener, I realise just how stupid I am. <laughs> Remember, an erstwhile regular on this segment, Heather out the Workers, former big supremo of the True Chamber of Fat Profits, who kept telling us the country could reach greatness if it weren't for evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers making unreasonable demands like wages and conditions well it now turns out Heather was a counter spy, an infiltrator, a plant working deep within the bowels of the enemy, and working deep in the bowels of capitalism is testimony to her dedication. Exposed, outed by brilliant government sleuths, big economic Supremo Josh Pride, M. Icebergs, Senator James Patter, Capitalist Son, and Tim Will Prophet Son, formerly of the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs. This, as Heather still claims to be part of the caring business class as a caring employer director of True Blue Aussie Super. And it's her role here that exposed her perfidy. See, industry super funds have suggested Well, the shocking headline says it all. Big super flexes its muscles. Suggested business should think long-term rather than short-term profit over customers and community, which those who matter interpret as a major threat, with Josh and James and Tim all decrying the industry super funds for daring bring politics into politics, increasing their screaming demands for evil unions to be divorced from all that lovely, lovely money. A dangerous development, Josh warned, superannuation is not a plaything for union bosses, nor a platform for pushing their industrial relations agenda, as he decried this aggressive union behaviour. And here's where Heather was exposed. She said the industry funds were doing a good job and should be left alone to work for their members. And it gets worse. Super funds had every right to discuss work practices with caring employers and had discussed issues like the Brazil dam failures with BHP with bloody huge profits. I mean, how perfidious can you get? How treacherous. She has been captured by the union, Senator Pater capitalist son said. Shockingly partisan comments like this show exactly why Troubluwazi Super and their lobbyists are wrong to oppose independent directors on super boards. The fiercely independent banks and investment giants nodded they shouldn't be the plaything of a dying union movement and Heather should remember her fiduciary duties rather than running the latest talking points of militant unions. And it gets even worse. Truly, truly, Tim, who recently launched an independent, totally unbiased parliamentary inquiry into how socialist party franking policies will destroy this country, exposed Heather for what she is. This woman once participated in, sit down, listener. sit down, in a Fabian conference. Does anything more need to be said? No, Tim, that says it all. She's either an apologist for union strangling of industry or completely captured and foolish. Yes, that says it all. Tim Tim does know something we didn't know, listener, but then he is a wise member of Parliament. He knows the Fabians are a threat to capitalism. A point that it escaped us completely. In the middle of all this, the current chamber of fat profit supremo Jennifer Worcester Cost of Workers And after the relentless campaign to get union directors off super boards and the big end of town on them to control all that lovely, lovely money, here's where satire just can't compete yet again. Jennifer said evil unions were trying to have a say in who should be on company boards, which was none of their evil business. Occasionally, we've just got to ask whether they ever listen to themselves or put their brains into think mode before opening their mouths. Perhaps that exposed spy Heather has become aware of the working class history of IWD. It's not just about getting more women on boards or parliamentarians like Kelly Oda, why are workers so evil and Julie Bashup, the workers, whose commitment to and solidarity with working women is so appreciated on the plus seats. But for the great corporates, it got even worse, as Socialist Party supremo and would-be big supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition, told this big business conference he would address slow wages growth, as if he needs to, because Jennifer and the great corporates she represents are all concerned about slow wages growth and wish for nothing more than that they could increase wages and know the solution lies in slashing the taxes they don't pay and increasing wages worker productivity, that latter the worker's own fault for not working hard enough, and introducing flexible industrial relations which guarantee a win-win outcome for both caring employers and caring employers. And they attack Little Billy's threat as calling for a living wage a living wage for a dying union movement, as Josh and James and Tim would sage, which I thought we'd we'd had for just over a century thanks to Justice Higgins. But no, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo of bore all profits, Mike Kane, the workers, declared after he'd recovered from the shock, creating jobs and wealth and boosting productivity will not be achieved through two Wazi stepping into the 19th century which some workers thought we already had but but Mike is so great a caring business class good boss he was named business person of the year two years ago for his courageous role in trying to crush the evil construction union so he knows what he's talking about Well, the Troubler-Wazzy Capitalist Review summed it up for all of us. Business warns Labour wage plan won't lift living standards because the big end of town knows that giving workers wages will do nothing to lift the living standards of the big end of town. Would Would step us back to the 19th century, so obviously we can't afford a living wage, so we'll just have to make do with... A dying wage, which must be the opposite, which the great corporates know is good for all of us. Sadly, the socialists are anti-worker, pointed out by government giant thinker Craig Killy the planet, because the socialists would oppose two exciting new coal-fired power stations that would employ just thousands and thousands and thousands of workers. And the Western troubler socialist government wants all new resource projects to be carbon neutral, costing thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs. And Craig made an important concession. given he doesn't believe there is such a thing as climate change, how can we address climate change if we're not allowed to change the climate? One of the great thinkers, Craig. Speaking of resurrecting old favourites like Heather, last week we resurrected the late and much-lamented Lord Kerry of Waterhouse, whose funeral was funded by the state out of the taxes he didn't pay, commenting, the week that was, that is, not Lord Kerry, it, it wasn't that sort of resurrection, on the contribution his Women's Weekly has made to quality journalism under the editorial guidance of our new ABC chair, ITA. Well, sadly... Unfortunate news this week for Lord Kerry's scion, Jamie Puker, who planned to do such great things for this city by building its tallest building, with a wonderful new bridge just happening to link it to James Crook Casino. But a couple of years ago our planning supremo Dick win for Capitalist, declared, declared it a project of state significance exempt from normal planning laws which was just as well because it didn't conform to any of the new laws Dick himself introduced to prevent inappropriate development. Severely truncating the planning approval process perhaps aided and abetted by a 100 million community benefits package from the Crook Corporation. But we all know Jamie would never promote an inappropriate development and is driven by community benefits it is absolutely appropriate to my community benefit he expressed his concern so why unfortunate well the two-year period in which construction had to begin under dick's approval has expired and due to a slump in apartment sales poor jamie hasn't been able to secure the finance required and the permit has lapsed Oh, I can hear you groaning in sympathy with poor Jamie, listener. And brickbatch to those non-community-minded, anti-appropriate development spoil sports who used freedom of information to study who'd benefit from Jamie's community benefits package and concluded the big beneficiary would be... <laughs> go on. Jamie in the crook casino. For goodness sake, what have these people got against business? It's the economy, stupid. Finally speaking of finance the foresight of the week award to the AFL which laid out 90 grand for these LED style interchange boards held up on the boundary with the number of the next player to run to the interchange bench. Hard to believe no one in that billion dollar bureaucracy tweaked that when you hold it up in the sunlight no one can read it. <laughs> I'm a technical moron and I could have told them that and saved them 90 grand of scrap. Good morning.
4: I'm in London still. I'm in London still. I'm in London. Still. Hi, this is Vicky from the waste. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Please support Community Radio. Oh, I'm in London still. La, 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 London still. I'm in
0: London. And we're in Melbourne and on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Don Sutherland on the line. How are you, Don?
2: Pretty good, Annie, and how are you? Best wishes to you and all your Listeners,
0: yes, that's right, and we've got lots of things to talk about. One of the things we were going to talk about was perme casual the yes. idea that uh, the uh, Wallers have come up with because they really just don't want to uh, shoulder their responsibility to their workers.
2: Yes, exactly. In fact, uh, what they're uh, trying to do is introduce a new category of employment and. The they we are talking about is, the, is specifically the New South Wales uh, Chamber business of Business of Commerce and Industry. And they are a, a quite a powerful employer grouping. And uh, I think it's uh, quite likely that the other employer organisations uh, who, to my knowledge, have not yet committed on this, but I, I feel as though so at some stage they will... Uh, falling behind this application or...
0: Well, it's a try-on, isn't it? They, they're they trying it on.
2: They're trying it on. And uh, I, I made some inquiries yesterday at the Fair Work Commission to get the uh, more specific detail on the application. And it's an application to for a test case to vary a set of awards where there is extensive use of casual workers on a relatively... Permanent basis. Um, the, um, uh, we'll go into that just a little bit, a, a little bit, because there's some other angles to this that I think are quite important at the moment. But we also should spend a bit of time on the wages struggle uh, as well, because it's really hotting up in various ways, and will probably get hotter uh, in the months ahead as we head to the election.
0: Well, it's interesting because uh, as I was telling you, I went to an event that was actually about uh, in artificial intelligence, and I'm pursuing artificial intelligence. Yeah. Uh, we'll have something about that later on in the program. But uh, it was I was sitting next to somebody who was from the oil and gas. Yeah. Uh, business and she said quite categorically that the problem with Australia is that our wages are uncompetitive and that's why we're going to go into artificial intelligence but if you think about it, the wages stagnation has is bad for the economy so what we've got here is uh, corporations versus the rest of us, effectively
2: Well I think um, <laughs> as we can explain, I think um, It all depends on how you define the economy, whether wages stagnation is bad. And there are contradictions in this. But, of course, the purpose of wages stagnation in Australia is to uh, raise the rate of exploitation, that is, the ratio, if you like, of profits relative to wages. And that is necessary in order to... Uh, and Humphrey McLean would have explained this at some stage, I'm sure, Um, you need to raise the volume of wages at the expense of workers in order to uh, 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 prevent a fall uh, fall in profitability. Uh, Because uh, as more and more uh, investment is put into, that is in fixed capital, then that will tend... If nothing else is happening to wages, that will tend to reduce profitability, even though profits might be going up. So there is a logic to it.
0: Well, uh, yeah, that in that their terms, yeah.
2: Its own contradictions, doesn't it? And yeah. Yes.
0: I mean, so, in the sense, do we care? I mean, uh, it's not in our. It's not in our benefit.
2: Well, the, the, the critical thing is, um, is of course that we want to we want to reduce and ultimately one day one hopes uh, stop. Uh, the incidence of exploitation, uh, not just reduce it. We have to struggle to reduce it in order one day to be able to win the battle to get rid of it. But the, um, uh, I think our interest is, uh, from the point of view of workers, is to not allow workers' wages and associated conditions to be the basis upon which bosses solve their problems on, prof- on the
0: profit front. Because logically speaking, people can only fit into so small a box before they just become slaves. And even then, the system must have some new method of increasing profitability. So it's a dead-end street. Capitalism is a dead-end street. Uh,
2: It is a dead-end street from the point of view of workers. That's that's very true. And then it presents itself the way the system operates. it it presents employers with a whole mess of contradictions that they somehow uh, have to work out, in which they uh, uh, often they are able to do that at our expense. But if we get our act together, then they don't, and the rate of exploitation uh, is reduced. So it's a big deal at the moment. We might come back to various ways in which that's happening, but just back on the permaflexy thing, this application from the Business Council. This is one of about four things that are going on at the moment around the status of casuals. Uh, What is not headlined is that there is actually a real struggle going on about what the future definition of a casual will be. And this has been brought to light, of course, and I think, uh, uh, we've discussed this before on Solidarity Breakfast and there's been some excellent recent coverage on your sister program, uh, the Stick Together Show. Uh, the uh, Mr Skeen, who was a mining worker, through his union, the mining division of the CFMEU, was able to prove that he, and therefore probably tens of thousands of other workers who have been appointed by a labour hire firm to work for a primary mining company appointed (laughs) as a casual, but in fact used as a permanent worker. Now, And the pay rates, the casualised pay rate was significantly less than what should have been paid to the casual worker. And associated with that, their, the worker was not receiving the, their uh, annual leave and sick leave entitlements as they should have because, in fact, the company was employing them as a permanent. Now, that all happened in around August last year. And since then, the as you could expect, the mining companies have been in a real tizz about it. And they found a sympathetic ear, of course, with the the then Turnbull government and now the Morrison government. And what Kelly O'Dwyer has done is... uh, Oh, and that case is now being challenged through another case, in other words, that decision by that particular federal court judge, and uh, is being challenged through another worker in which the mining company is going to allege... Or, or claim that that that, uh, that other worker is in the same situation but uh, they're going to try and seek a new decision from the federal court which will in effect annul the decision of the uh, in the scheme
0: so so what they're actually trying to do is as I said before uh, abrogate their responsibilities to employees and society in general by removing conditions well yeah and they, what they're doing is saying that people, no, no, but what they're doing is they're saying that all the conditions and social uh, welfare arrangements within employment should be replaced by a, a small amount of increase in hourly pay. Well, that's
2: what, that's what the permaflexy proposal is. The permaflexy proposal is one of four things that are going on right now. So we've got it and we've got and the other two things are equally, uh, two of the other things are equally as dangerous. But let's be clear, there's still more water to flow under the bridge in the federal court. But what the Morrison government has done is two things to try and break down this very positive decision of the in the scheme case, which uh, clearly defined what a. Firstly, what it
0: what a Yeah, yeah. Is. So what what is what's he done? And the what, two he...
2: things is firstly that uh, uh, O'Dwyer has used a broken rule in the Fair Work Act to install a regulation that enables. Hello. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: Uh, that enables. Uh, it enables an employer to dodge that decision and uh, and to avoid, therefore, uh, back-paying to workers what their entitlements would be if the workers are able to prove that they have been uh, actually working as a permanent. So what um, uh, what the uh, uh, what the AMWU is doing uh, because this regulation. That has been imposed by O'Dwyer to protect employers can be overturned by a decision in either the House, in either the House of Reps or in the Senate. And so the AMWU is building a little campaign to put pressure on uh, enough senators to uh, annul this regulation that has been introduced by O'Dwyer. Now. Uh, the second thing that is, i mean if people
0: if people didn't want uh, evidence didn't have evidence that this government does not govern for the workers of Australia that is just a perfect indictment it, what you perfect, just said
2: yes it's a perfect indictment and the second thing they've done is actually put forward uh, to back that up they've put forward a proposal to amend the fair work act which is a bill at the moment. In other words, it hasn't yet been passed. But I understand it may well come up in front of the Parliament at the next sitting, uh, which is the budget sitting. How far it will go, I don't know. But it's quite dangerous because what it does is... uh, And it's all done in the context of uh, enabling... uh, Allegedly or supposedly enabling workers to make arrangements to seek a transfer from being a casual to being permanent.
0: Yeah, but what are they going to do? What are they doing?
2: It has this sugar coating.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. they always do that. They always say, oh, this is in your best interest and then you discover that it's a knife in your heart. But go on.
2: Exactly. And the knife in the heart is that it gives employers absolute control over deciding whether a worker is a casual or not.
0: Yeah, right. And is this something to do with how many permanent hours that people are actually given?
2: Uh, Not directly, no. Although indirectly, yes, because the employer decides that.
0: Yeah, that's right.
2: And uh, in most awards, um, the the minimum number of hours that a casual worker should be given are defined. So in the manufacturing award, it's four hours. But in other awards, you might see three hours for certain types of work, and you might see one hour for other types of work, depending on the nature of the work and what has been reached by agreement over the years. Between negotiations between employers and workers, so that's the that's that brings us then to the fourth front. Now, what this is all about, the the permaflexy and these three other things that are going on, is to give employers uh, uh, protect and advance new rights for employers to increase the the rate of Uh, uh, the expendable workforce.
0: Oh, my God.
2: That's what it's all about. Jeez. The the, the rate, although the rate of full-time employment is pretty stable and not desperate, the level of unemployment, uh, uh, underemployment in Australia is extremely high. And that means a big, big proportion of the Australian workforce who are in work are in work where they are highly expendable or they're underemployed. They're looking for more hours.
0: So what, what you're saying is that this is, arrangement is so that uh, they're allowing employers to employ, uh, uh, have a pool of workers that they underemploy effectively. Is that what you're saying?
2: That's correct. Or they, or they have uh, much, great, much more powerful rights than even what they have right now be able to shift workers in and out of work, and to vary their hours, to vary when they work, and so on, at the behest of the employer. In other words, they have very strong rights to do that already, and they want more.
0: Oh goodness! I just remind listeners that I just remind listeners that they're listening to Solidarity Breakfast, and we're talking to Don Donald Sutherland. Um, so that means that. Uh, Uh, All those people who have uh, children or people who work in... uh, This is going to have such a flow-on effect on uh, people's quality of life in Australia.
2: Absolutely, on their quality of work, because if you can imagine it, both their quality of work and their quality of life generally, it means that when people are at, at work, more of them will not know how many hours they're getting. What does that do to a person's anxiety while they are at work?
5: But
0: also, it's, it's a human, where do they get off not telling people how long they're going to be working for? I mean, why is that an all right thing to even consider? It's outrageous.
2: Well, it, and also, will be not all employers will do it, because it would be impracticable, and they'll work out that, in fact, it could be damaging to the way in which they run their business. But there's enough who want this. This is called, in inverted commas, flexibility. Okay, this, but it is employer's flexibility. That's right, it's and, and I notice. Flexibility from a worker's point of view who needs flexible hours. In order to be able to manage uh, family and caring responsibilities
0: and or normal life, just having a rest between work. I mean, I went to a thing this week, and uh, there was the agricultural worker was talking about how they, uh, you know, they'd be start at five o'clock in the morning, and then nobody, they'd be working sort like eleven at night, but nobody was told when they were allowed to go home, and they didn't even supply them with a toilet.
2: Yep. The <laughs> The employers will do what they think they can get away with and uh, this what's going on on the front of you know, the, the, the definition of the different types of employment and now this uh, proposal to introduce a new category of the permanent flexi in the guise of you know that it's going to provide uh, for permanent, permanent it's going to provide for holiday pay and sick leave entitlements when the AMWU, again Done a quick analysis of that, and the guts of it is that the casual loading gets reduced from around 25% uh, to, uh, in some in some awards and agreements, it's a little bit less than that, but generally it's 25% back to 10% that's what they that's what they want the commission so to. they want
0: the, they want them to be there at their beck and call and say no you know boo, boo to a goose and they're going to pay people less money
2: well that uh, sounds I, great I was, let's was, have a party i had a, a bit of a look at the um, the particular one of the the particular awards that they are targeting and they are they are targeting awards in which the workers don't have much bargaining power Human services type awards, social and community services type awards. So those workers where there is a significant amount of casual work uh, and the workers therefore don't have much bargaining power uh, are relatively weak. And, and so it's classic, isn't it? The bosses are targeting the weak Yep. in order to make a breakthrough on their own behalf.
0: And not only that, the service areas, I presume that the people that they're servicing are also in a position of not being able to uh, demand better service. So the, the general public should be worried about this as well because, it I mean, will. if you're in a position where you're kicked, kicked, then you will kick. You know, people kick the dog. In to express their own aggravation, it's really actually degrading our society.
2: It is, it is. I had a look at the uh, the uh, the award rates, the casual rates for workers. Now, I just there's several, you know, there's about ten classifications in the particular uh, award I looked at, and there are some different pay points in each classification, but about the mid range the casualised rate that is incorporating the 25% loading is $42.40 a week. Now, if you do your sums and say, well, in the future, it's going to be 10% instead of 25% casualised, that's a pay cut.
0: Yeah, it's a pay cut.
2: For the casualised worker. And in return, they get what they would have been getting if they were working as permanents anyway. So if if they're designated, appointed as casuals, but in fact have been working as permanents, what Scheme did was prove that it is possible for them to be able to get their sick leave and annual leave in any case. So uh, this is very serious and it's all about if you have a, a big proportion of the workforce who are more expendable even than they are now, then that puts downward pressure on wages for those permanent workers who have relatively more bargaining power. That's what it is strategically all about, undermining the bargaining power of those who are strong, not just destroying the bargaining power of those who are relatively weak.
0: Well, you know, they do have a systemic uh, view of this, an overview, because if you look at uh, the social security system, uh, that dovetails perfectly into the, the way it's been operated, this uh, draconian system that has been put into place during the LNP government's rule. Uh, fits in, dovetails perfectly with uh, this repressive industrial relations arrangement.
2: Yes, and, you know, it, um, it really does make uh, reinforce just how important the Change the Rules campaign is and the days of action that are coming up. And uh, I think it's really terrific that there is going to be, on Wednesday, April the 10th, a, 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 another day of action around change the rules all over the country. And that means it's a defiance day uh, to participate in that. We will have to have organised defiance for workers to come off the job and attend the rallies that are being organised. Just the... So- Trying to emulate the magnificent uh, rallies back in November, December in Melbourne uh, where, you know, I think tens of thousands of people came out more than what um, uh, most of the uh, pundits expected. The, um, I think there's some really exciting things going on. International Women's Day itself, uh, the Big Steps campaign is an industry wages campaign. Which is trying to close the gender gap on wages. Very, I think this is a very exciting campaign. On uh, March the 21st, it's National Closing the Gap Day, in which there is an opportunity for unions and union members to do practical things to help change the gap uh, on many fronts uh, that exists for our uh, First Nations brothers and sisters. That is all part of it, especially when you look at the CDP program and the hyper-exploitation that's associated with that. Um, Annie, this week, there was uh, the whole... uh, The struggle around wages policy went to a new level because, not just because, but it reflected, perhaps, is a better way to put it, the, the national accounts came out and they were showing that australia is on or getting closer to recession uh, uh under the man- under uh, managed by uh, this government so they can't even do a decent job on their own behalf and then secondly the australian financial review held its annual business summit um yep yeah very interesting on yesterday in the Australian Financial Review, there were no less than eight big articles about wages <laughs> and wages policy. And what they're getting their knickers in a knot about, what the employers are getting their knickers in a knot about, is that the Labour a Labour government, because of the Change the Rules campaign, is going to make some very modest changes to the Fair Work Act. They're not radical. So when it comes, for example, Uh, The low rates of pay, those on very low rates of pay, the current rules make it very difficult for workers to win increases in the minimum rates of pay. Extremely difficult.
0: Big steps.
2: Yeah. Uh, And so the new proposal is that what Labor will do will give a, a little bit more power to the Fair Work Commission to make decisions that will lift the minimum rate to a living wage. Goodness! Yeah.
0: Off the top wow, of, uh, a bit of justice. <laughs>
2: so it's not going to do it directly. The Greens propose to lift wages to the level of a living wage, which is about two thirds of the median, median national median wage. Yeah, and another, probably about another thirty-five dollars uh, a week on top of on
0: top uh, of yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're coming to the end of the uh, time yeah. we've got allotted. So,
2: and. And the um, uh, the Greens are proposing a way it can be done directly. Um, the Labor Party is proposing that they would not do it directly, that they would make it possible for the Fair Work Commission to be able to deal with na- annual wage claims, minimum rate claims, in a way that would be easier for them to uh, be able to lift the rates towards a living wage. And they, the employees have got their knickers in a knot about it and up in arms about it, and Shorten's responding, responded and saying, well, it'll only happen gradually. Yeah, yeah. So it's not by no means a radical proposal.
0: Well, it never and, is, really, is it? Yeah. Uh, we have to finish there, Don, because we've come right to the edge, to the wire. Thank you very much for this um, overview. Um, we'll get back to you with uh, more of this discussion as time passes.
2: Yes, and there's a, I'd just recommend to your listeners, if you can, have a closer look at the financial review coverage of these things. It's an opportunity to learn a lot about what the thinking of employers is, uh, is at the moment and the type of arguments we're going to need to be able to win over the next, not just in the period leading up to the election, but also afterwards, because the struggle will shift from wages policy to actual wages.
0: Okay, we have to go. Yes, that was Don, and he's completely correct. Coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents. I'll have to let you go right now. We're going to go out with uh, Warrior in Woolworths X-Ray Spec. Mm.